0: Episode 16, Moscow They lay in wait, low and quiet. The whole vehicle was barely taller than a man. It was one of the Stug 3s, an assault gun, one of the mobile tank destroyers of the Third Reich. Its design is simple, it's a Panzer III, but instead of a turret, an anti-tank gun has been welded into place. It sacrifices the ability to turn the gun independently for the structural reinforcement necessary to mount a gun big enough to put a dent in a T-34. But this means that it's not the best in open battle. It's a weapon of surprise and positioning. And so they wait, just over the crest of a hill, for the Red Army to come. The radio crackles. A Soviet counter-attack is underway. An armoured column will be on their position in less than 10 minutes. The commander checks his watch. He nods to the men. They fire up the engine. No one says a word. They just silently count out time. Then, out of the gunner's periscope, they spot them. T-34s advancing across the open fields below them. A few words pass between the men and they roar over the hilltop. They line up their great gun A shell screams into the side of a passing Soviet tank. Luck is with them. It tears through the fragile side plating. Now they just have to get back to the other side of the hill before the Soviets can do the same to them. Welcome to The Finest Half Hour, read by Richard Cutland, written by Jim Jager, and brought to you with the generous support of Wargaming. Before we start today, let's take a moment to examine the state of the war in 1941. Because we've had to deal with so many different theatres and different fronts, we've jumped back and forth in time a little. But right now, it's October 1941. In England, the Blitz is over, and the Battle of Britain has been definitively won. But across the rest of the globe, the forces of democracy are being pushed back. Eastern Europe has fallen. Greece, the birthplace of democracy, has just been crushed under fascist jackboots. In Africa, Operation Battleaxe has failed and Rommel is on the offensive. In Asia, the Japanese Empire is continuing to expand and we're still months away from the attack on Pearl Harbor, bringing the American behemoth into the war. And on the Eastern Front, it seems like Nazi forces have met with success after success. In three short months, over a million Red Army troops have been killed or captured from Kiev to the outskirts of Leningrad. But Hitler's infamous Order 33, diverting troops from Army Group Centre and sending them to assist with the conquest of Ukraine, has brought the drive on Moscow to a halt. It's just now, in early October, that Army Group Centre has gotten all of its armour back and is ready to restart the final push on Moscow. But the Russians have not been idle during this time. There will be 15 Soviet armies waiting to meet them. October the 1st to the 15th, 1941. His hand trembled. Rain ran down his face. Get out of the trench. Get out of the trench, he whispered to himself over and over. But he couldn't move. His friend was right there, 20 metres away, laying face down in the mud. He had to get to him, to pull him to safety. Get out of the trench. His legs tensed. He would vault over the trench wall and drag his friend, the only man in his unit from his village, back to safety. He was ready. He would go. Bullets hit the ground in front of him with a sickly squelching noise, spraying his face with mud. Get out of the trench. His friend was upside down, drowning in eight inches of muck. He had to go. He had to do it now. Get out of the trench! As the calendar turned from September to October, Army Group Centre began its final push for Moscow. The plan was simple. It was the standard Wehrmacht playbook, an encirclement from the north and the south. Guderian's panzer division would push through the Soviet line in the south, as other armoured divisions did so on the northern end. Then they would drive east and link up behind the Soviet capital, cutting it off and forcing its surrender. The Germans outnumbered the Russians, being able to field somewhere in the neighbourhood of three men for every two the Soviet Union could get in the field. And the Russian line was made up of the remnants of the former frontline armies and hastily trained levies. Though they were relatively well-equipped, for Soviet industry had begun to make up for the losses in tanks, artillery and, crucially, aeroplanes that occurred during the first weeks of the disaster that was Barbarossa. The Germans, on the other hand, were beginning to feel the pinch of stretched supply lines and the immense wear and tear that came from Hitler's orders to send their armour hundreds of miles across rough, often roadless country to fight on a whole different front and then to come back again but the operation began with the now expected German success. In the north, the Germans encircled hundreds of thousands of Soviet troops at the German town of Viesma, a mere 150 miles outside of Moscow. In the south, Guderian's forces also broke through Soviet lines and managed an encirclement around Bryansk. But on the 7th of October, the first snow of the year fell, and on the 8th, as it melted, All of central Russia became one giant, untraversable marsh. This was the Rasputitsa. We touched on it last week, but it's something that can't be stressed enough. With the first snow and the first thaw, the Russian terrain radically changed. Dirt roads, which were the majority of roads in Russia, became knee deep mires. Supplies, which once flowed across them, now were dragged, often literally through the cloying mud. Open plains, which had provided the perfect environment for mechanized war, became sucking pits, which would leave trucks spinning their wheels and tanks sinking into the mud. And for the infantry? Marching across this country was misery. Trudging through knee-deep muck, every step pulling at your boots. Water seeping through your thin summer trousers was exhausting. It was, some said, more exhausting than battle. So the advance slowed and many of the troops that Guderian had encircled got away. The Soviets formed a second defensive line and Zhukov was recalled from Leningrad to command it. But the Germans were closing in on the Soviet capital. Panic started to set in in Moscow. On the 15th of October, Stalin ordered government officials to abandon the city. When the civilian populace heard of this, chaos ensued, with people desperately trying to get out. Meanwhile in Berlin, morale was at an all-time high. Nazi official radio broadcasts said that the troops would be home by Christmas, that the war was almost won. In fact, armament production was intentionally reduced in preparation for the imminent cessation of the war. But, at the last minute, Stalin steeled his nerve and decided he would not leave the capital. Moscow must be held. October 16th to November 14th, 1941. Heels click sharply through Red Square. A military band plays the Internationale. Horse-drawn caissons roll past and huge T-34s rumble through. An unending river of men and machines pass in front of the Kremlin. And above it all stands Stalin. He is giving a speech that echoes across the square. A great liberating mission has fallen to your lot. Be worthy of this mission. The war you are waging is a war of liberation, a just war. Let the manly images of our great ancestors, Alexander Nevsky, Dmitry Donskoy, Kuzma Minin, Dmitry Porzhavsky, Alexander Savorov and Mikhail Kutuzov, inspire you in this war. May the victorious banner of the great Lenin be your lodestar. For the complete destruction of the German invaders, death to the German invaders, long live our glorious motherland, her liberty and her independence, under the banner of Lenin, forward to victory. The Soviets hastily raised another five armies, and threw them into the gap in the northern section of the line. The Germans were shocked. German military intelligence, which was notoriously bad, had repeatedly reported that the Soviets were running out of reserves. But to the men on the ground, and especially to the high command, it was starting to become clear that they had vastly underestimated the force the Russians could muster. They prepared for an invasion against an army half the size of what the Soviet Union was actually able to field. Despite their incredible string of victories, every bullet used, every soldier lost, left them less and less capable of dealing with the Russian behemoth. Still, they began to push the second Soviet defensive line back. But this time there were no enormous breaks, no wholesale encirclements of Russian armies. In the north, they forced the Red Army out of Muzharska, a mere 70 miles from the heart of Moscow. But in the south, Guderian's exhausted troops were repelled at the town of Tula. This was disastrous for the original plan, because if Tula remained intact and not cut off from the main Soviet defensive positions, any attempt to encircle Moscow from the south would have a major threat sitting on its flank. The Germans pushed on, though, they were so close to the Soviet capital, a brisk hour's drive from the Kremlin. But the German strength had run out. On the 31st of October, German high command called a halt to operations. Too many critical issues needed to be addressed up and down the line. Supply was a disaster. Many units were dangerously under strength. Divisions were often operating at less than 50% their original capacity. Nearly two-thirds of Army Group centers' vehicles were out of commission, either due to enemy action or simple mechanical failure from being pushed too hard. The troops were exhausted. Reserves were non-existent. And, even as the temperatures began to plunge, winter clothes were not available to most troops. The demodernization of the Wehrmacht had begun. Once the most technologically advanced armies in the world, they now relied on a horse and cart system that would have been familiar in Napoleon's day. Soon they'd settle into trench fighting that was more reminiscent of 1914 than 1940. And, as the snow began to fall and they desperately awaited the arrival of winter uniforms, some commanders issued orders for their troops to seize all the white linens they could find before burning villages so they could use them as camouflage. The famously spit and polished Wehrmacht soldiers now went into battle wearing bedsheets, curtains and tablecloths. In short, the Wehrmacht couldn't go on. So for two weeks they held where they were, building up their strength for a final thrust into Moscow. But the Soviets did not let this time go to waste. Zhukov organised a three-ring defence for Moscow. A quarter of a million women dug trenches and built anti-tank ditches around the capital. They moved four million tons of dirt by hand with picks and shovels, without machines. When they were done, his soldiers had solid defensive positions to fight from and secondary lines of defence to fall back to. Meanwhile, Stalin pulled off one of the greatest PR coups of all time. As panic spread through Moscow, and the populace desperately tried to flee the city, he needed to do something to assure them that the ancient Russian capital would not fall. He announced that he would stay in the city, but it wasn't enough. He needed something more. He needed to demonstrate the might of the Soviet Union to the populace so concretely that they would believe in the state, believe in the Red Army, believe that Moscow might hold. During this time, the army had been desperately transferring troops from the east. They'd broken the Japanese diplomatic codes. They knew the Japanese were not going to invade any time soon, allowing them to transfer 18 divisions, 1,700 tanks and 1,500 planes to shore up the defences of Moscow. On the 7th of November, the day that, during times of peace, the Soviet Union would hold parades to celebrate the October Revolution. And yes, I know it's confusing that the October Revolution actually happened in November, but calendars were different back then. Stalin ordered the newly arrived troops from the east to march through Red Square on their way to the front. Even with the enemy on their doorstep, the revolution lived on. This year, there would not just be a parade, there would be the greatest display of military might the people of Moscow had ever seen. How could a force like that possibly be defeated? Panic was quelled, the populace stayed, went back to work, converted their factories into munition plants, manned the anti-aircraft guns that ringed the capital. Moscow was once again firmly under Stalin's control, due to this genius act of political theatre. But then Stalin did something monumentally stupid and, against Zhukov's urging, ordered an attack on the Germans. The Wehrmacht may have been exhausted, unable to take on the Soviets in well-fortified positions, but they were certainly a match for a bevy of outnumbered Russians charging straight into them. Many of those troops that marched so smartly through Red Square would never see the east again, and every life squandered weakened Moscow's defensive line. Finally, on the 14th of November, temperatures dropped so low that the ground finally froze. The mud was gone, tanks could drive, trucks could run, men could charge. The advance would begin again. November the 15th. The world has become ice. Every day it defines our lives. We wake and cannot wash for we cannot get warm water. We go outside and our breath freezes in our beards. We chip the ice off our machines. We light fires under them to thaw the liquids that run them. Some men pray to lose a finger or a toe to frostbite, thinking that will send them home. At meals they serve us piping hot soups when they can, but they are bitter cold by the time that you can take them somewhere to sit and eat them. If you get caught up in conversation for a moment, they freeze before you get the first bite. And those are the good days, the days when they try to make the food hot. Our clothes are thin, often reduced to rags from months of hard use. Many of the men wear babushka's headscarf so their ears don't freeze off. And the felt boots the Russians wear are in high demand because your feet won't freeze in them. Some men even sneak out late at night after a battle, and take hacksaws to cut off the Russians' feet so they can thaw them out and get off the boots. I've heard some commanders even order men to do this as a punishment detail. I don't know that I hate the ice worse than the mud, but I know this much. We must win, and soon, or otherwise we will have won ourselves to death. It was time for one last gamble one last armoured push to complete the encirclement of Moscow. The remaining mechanised strength of Army Group Centre, concentrated in the north and the south, would attempt a pincer movement to envelop Moscow and fulfil the objectives that German planning had assumed would have been completed so many months before. It was one of the worst winters on record. Temperatures dropped far below zero. In many divisions, frostbite accounted for more casualties than Soviet arms. To make matters worse, much of Army Group Centre still didn't have winter gear. Even the limited amount of winter clothing the Wehrmacht had available hadn't really made its way to the front because the supply issues caused by the Rasputitsa had forced the German High Command to choose between sending winter garments and munitions, and in the end, munitions won out. But the soldiers of Army Group Centre fought on. They pushed the Soviets back. In the centre, Wehrmacht troops made it all the way to the suburbs of Moscow. They even forced their way across the Volga before a powerful counter-attack by Zhukov's troops tossed them back across the river. In the north, they made it so close to Moscow that in forward positions German troops could see the Kremlin through their field glasses. They were less than 20 miles from the heart of the Soviet Empire. In the south, Kuderian's troops were just too worn out. They were once again turned back at Tula as civilians rushed out to join the local garrison in defence of their city. Kuderian then tried a daring manoeuvre. He fanned out his troops so some would hold the flank against the Soviet troops in Tula while others tried to bypass the city and rush to complete the pincer around Moscow. They never even came close. The drive on Moscow had failed. Meanwhile, back in Germany, on the 28th of November, another assessment of the war was taking place. A council of the greatest industrialists in the Reich had come together to work out how much Germany would have to produce each year to win the war. They did some quick and dirty maths and the estimate they came to said the Third Reich would have to spend more on the army in the next two years than it projected it would have to spend over the course of the entire Second World War. They didn't have the raw materials or the industrial capacity to sustain the type of effort it now seemed like it was going to take to achieve a lasting victory. The war was unwinnable. They brought this information to Hitler and told him that Germany could no longer prevail through military means. So he turned to them and said, then how should Germany prevail? They urged him to find a diplomatic solution, a peace on favourable terms, but he shooed them away. And, as 1941 came to a close, some in German high command were coming to the same conclusion. A number of generals noted privately that, with the drive on Moscow failing, the offensive power of the Wehrmacht was running out. What had been years of astounding victory would now turn into years of slow, inevitable defeat. Many at the highest levels saw it. Even as propaganda at home said Germany was winning the war and the Allied nations despaired at what seemed to them like a string of unbroken Axis successes, those with the ability to actually look at the real state of the Third Reich realised, as early as the winter of 1941, that the Wehrmacht was set up for lightning war not long-drawn-out battles of attrition. Instead of going for the Middle Eastern oil fields or finding a way to knock Britain out of the war, Hitler had gambled everything on a quick victory in the USSR. And, with each passing day, it was becoming clearer he'd lost. There was no way the Third Reich, blockaded from trade with most of the world and now cut off from the raw materials it had previously been getting from the Soviet Union, could match Allied production. If the United States entered the war, which it would in a matter of days, that problem would become insurmountable. But no German general was brave enough to say this to Hitler, and so the slaughter in the East continued. December the 5th, 1941. It was like crossing another world, a strange alien place. He'd seen flooded villages with sagging roofs sinking slowly beneath the waves. He'd seen hollow-eyed people clutching at bundles of rags. And then there were the chimneys. They'd pass whole towns with nothing to mark where they'd been but scorched grass and dozens of crumbling chimney stacks sticking out of the earth. Towns that had been burnt by the Soviets as they retreated from them earlier in the year and then burnt again by the Germans as they got driven back. He realised he'd been to this place once, as a child. They'd stayed the night on a school trip. Now there was nothing here but blackened bricks and a handful of unburied bones. Charred German tanks now dotted the road in front of them. He and his crew manned a KV-1, more heavily armoured than the T-34, but slower. There'd been action here a day or two past. You could smell it in the air. For a moment they stopped to look, then rumbled forward. They'd been sent to reinforce some infantry that had become bogged down rooting Germans out of a fortified position on the hill. After a brief word with the local commander, the situation became clear. The Germans had a string of machine gun nests and anti-tank guns dug in on the heights. They had an hour to rest, then the next assault would begin. They drank their vodka ration and refueled the tank. Then it was time, the charge was called. Men raced forward, someone had a huge Soviet flag. Machine guns opened up. To the left and the right of them, men fell. Bullets rattled harmlessly off their armor. Then the anti-tank guns began firing. Dull Thud slamming into the front of their great beast. He laughed, they did nothing. He felt invincible in the turret of this great Russian weapon of war. They were grinding up the hill, slowly. They could see German helmets now, above the trench line. He ordered his gunner to load the high-explosive shells. The main gun roared and kicked. A machine gun disappeared in a pillar of fire. Anti-tank shells hammered against their sloped armour, but still they climbed, slowly, steadily up the hill. They were 30 metres, 20. Germans start running. Ten meters, five, they roll over the German emplacement. Beneath their great machines, something makes a satisfying crunch. While the strength of the Wehrmacht had been waning, the strength of the Red Army had been growing. Over the weeks of the failed attack on Moscow, Stalin, confident now that the Japanese were not going to attack, had transferred more fresh battle-hardened troops from the east to the Moscow front. By the 5th of December, the Soviet forces, for the first time, outnumbered Army Group Centre. The advantage wasn't great, but it was enough for Stalin to approve a plan for Zhukov, for an ambitious winter offensive. On the 5th of December, two days before the attack on Pearl Harbour would occur on the other side of the world, the Red Army made its move. Amidst violent blizzards and cold so bitter soldiers' flesh would freeze to their guns, the Soviets advanced. The German line was thrown into chaos. T-34s ran over hastily assembled German defences. Katyusha rockets melted the snow. And finally, the Red Air Force was able to make its presence felt. The Luftwaffe was largely grounded and able to operate in the terrible Soviet conditions. With thin supply and temperatures of minus 40 degrees being recorded, The mighty air arm of the Reich could do nothing but sit idly by, while the more winter-proof Soviet air force strafed and bombed the conspicuous Germans running across the snow. By the 14th, the German generals agreed. The line could not be held. A withdrawal was ordered, without consulting Hitler. The Führer was furious. He sacked a whole host of the high command, including Guderian, and, most importantly, Brauchitsch, the commander-in-chief of the German army. It was time for a new commander-in-chief, and Hitler knew just the man, himself. Yes, Hitler appointed himself head of the army. He cancelled the retreat order and famously harangued his commanders, saying the men could dig trenches with howitzer shells if they had to, but there would be no more retreat. Draconian measures started to be taken. Summary executions began to rise. They were nowhere near as widespread or common as they were in the Red Army, but the famous German discipline had begun to crack, and it could only be resolved by raw brutality. The type of brutality that set the tone for the war in the East. No quarter was to be given, not even by comrades, not even by friends. Finally, the weather cleared enough for Luftwaffe, now with massive reinforcements brought in from other theatres to operate again. Several of the German divisions that had been surrounded broke out, and the German line began to stabilise. The Soviet advance had been halted, but in most places they'd thrown the Germans back at least 100 miles. Was Moscow an impossible objective? Could the Germans have taken it even if they hadn't diverted forces to Kiev in the final days of summer of 1941? And perhaps most importantly, could they have held it if they took it? With supply lines stretched, industrial capacity already pressed to its limits, and a foe that seemed to grow stronger every day. These are questions we'll never be able to answer, because there's one thing we know for certain. Moscow had been saved. The German army would never get that close to it again.